Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, and today the topic is going to be universals. Uh, We're going to look at the platonic idea of universals, and particularly what we want to do today is kind of trace it, uh, trace the universal uh, idea uh, through medieval thought. Uh, and for our listeners, this is the course that's currently being offered by Dr. Smith, uh, a, an entire, um, what is it, 15 weeks, I believe, 15 weeks yeah, of um, medieval philosophy where we, uh, where mm-hmm. we trace uh, all kinds of lines of thought and look at it from both a mm-hmm. thematic perspective, but also uh, looking at it as, in a historical perspective as well. Uh, so if that's something that may interest you, uh, check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com for our courses there. And so, uh, Dr. Smith, all right, to get us uh, started today, maybe you can just kind of give our listeners kind of an introduction to the Platonic idea of universals, uh, what it is, and then we'll start to trace it through medieval thought. Sure. And, and uh, you know, Jason, you said uh, for any of us who, for any of you who may be interested in medieval philosophy, <laughs> I just want to say everyone... Everyone who's thinking should be interested in medieval philosophy. Uh, but uh, anyway, so um, the uh, the problem of universals, right? This is kind of like a just a core stock issue for um, you know philosophy and the history of ideas. Uh, anybody worth their salt, you know, is going to know is going to know something uh, about this topic mm-hmm. and reflect on it. And you just really see it. I mean, it's just a permanent topic. I mean, even contemporary analytic philosophy talks about the problem of universals, right? So um, what does this really come down to? Plato developed the idea of a universal idea or a universal form, and he was doing that in uh, reaction to the sophist. Uh, The sophists were rhetoricians, and what the sophists were interested in was persuasive speech, power, uh, and uh, persuasion, but not necessarily... um, truth right <laughs> they, they, they thought that that what uh you know uh, basically that the truth is in the eye of the beholder right and that uh, uh if you could persuade the many that it was good to go to war with sparta then it was good to go to war with sparta and that's all there is to it uh so plato's sort of reacting against this idea and uh in reaction he develops the idea that no look there is such a thing as a universal form of justice mm-hmm. uh an idea of justice that applies to every instance and always, mm-hmm. right? So those, that's the, those are the key features, always and every instance. That's what it means for there to be a universal idea. So we can say, you know, for uh, every man is mortal, right? That proposition is true uh, if there is a universal man, uh, idea of man or form of man, right? right? That includes mortality, right? So that anytime you refer to a man, whether it's... Um, you know, uh, I don't know, Karl Marx, Napoleon, or Socrates, right? <laughs> um, that we have, there's, of course, differences between those three figures, right? Sure. But that there is an underlying foundational sort of common character to them that is unchanging and applies to every instance, right? Yep. Um, now, you just think about why is that important? If you have universals, right, if there are universal ideas or universal forms, then you can deduce necessary truths, right? So I can know that if Socrates is a man, then he is necessarily mortal, right? right? I can know that if Napoleon is a man, as august as he was in his time, uh, then I can also still know 
that he's necessarily mortal. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think this is important. This idea uh, is important for, I mean, just language. I mean, I can't sure. show you a rake and say, look at my chair. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the <laughs> the universal idea of a chair or, you know, the, this is how we are. This is how I should say this is how we use the idea of universals. You know, when, when uh, I say chair, you know, you're going to think of something with, you know, at least three, maybe four rungs and in, in a place to 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 sit. Uh, um, right, so if right. I show you a rake, you know, and this is where, you know, kind of the use of the, the ideas uh, uh, come in handy. Uh, uh, sure, sure. I like that idea. Like uh, uh, right now I'm getting my house uh, remodeled. And so it's all everything's are you know, kind of sixes and sevens around here. But the, uh, you know, like so right now, literally my 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 dryer and my washer are sitting in my living room. Uh, <laughs> But if you came in and said, "Hey Ben, what's what's wrong with your? Why you get your wash in the living room?" I was like, "That's not my wash, man. That's my couch. That's my couch. Yeah, uh, <laughs> my coffee table. You know, yeah. <laughs> what are you dissing on my coffee table for? Uh, right? You would rightly say, well, wait a second. That's not a coffee table. <laughs> that's that's a that's a washer. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's a it's a good it's a it's very important for not just you know uh, philosophical thinking, especially when it comes to metaphysics." Um, but just in, in speech and in our, we don't, I don't think we always understand that yeah. we use this idea of universals, uh, you know? Yeah. So when I would, when I was teaching this, uh, in college, uh, or, or, um, and let's say a logic class, right. I mean, I would just say, imagine trying to speak without common nouns, yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, if everything had to be a proper noun, like New York city or Virginia, you know, then like you just, you would never get around to saying anything. Yeah. It'd be impossible. Right. Um, okay. So that's the basic issue, right. When it comes to universals. Now the, the weird part about Plato um, is, uh, so Plato's, I mean, I just want to say Plato's genius, right. I mean, right. just right on about this in one way. In another way he kind of got off track, but his idea was, well, if there's going to, if they're going to be these universals, they have to exist apart from the world of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is that everything in the world of experience is particular and changing, but univer- but forms or universal ideas are universal and unchanging. So right. you can see his point, right? Yeah. Uh, so he posits the separate world of the forms. Now, that's very influential uh, idea and um, somewhat attractive, although it's very hard to conceptualize what a separate world of ideas would be, right? <laughs> like yeah. it, it's kind of mind-bending to try to think. So there's like these real definitions just sort of existing right apart from anything particular or, or or any particular mind right and and plato just says yes that's correct <laughs> <laughs> the world reality is strange uh, now that though was was picked up by christian thinkers you can find this all through the patristic period sure. uh in fact you know i would say that plato was was probably the, the i would say the first millennium of christianity um was more neoplatonic or platonic than uh, any other philosophical school. Sure. Um, and you can see why, but of course they, there was an, an important transition here and St. Augustine's a good example of this. And this is uh, his, uh, his way of approaching it is picked up also by St. Bonaventure. Uh, but this is the, the, the view that, well, okay, there are separate ideas, but those separate ideas are in the mind of God, mm-hmm. right? So that there is a, a mind that is thinking those ideas. They don't just sort of exist in a separate sort of uh, reality. Right? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, both St. Bonaventure and St. Augustine hold that view. Um, 
And then, you know, you still have the question, of, uh, the next question that arises is, well, okay, if there are these, I mean, we think universal is the problem of universals, you really should just be thinking, are there any universal and unchanging truths? <laughs> right? right. And, um, of course, you know, Catholics have to say yes, and, and I would think. And uh, and St. Augustine and St. Bonavich would say so. And, but then there's questions, well, how do we access them, mm -hmm. right? How do we get them, right? Where, you know, because St. Augustine and St. Bonavich were both agree with Plato that, yeah, we don't get them out of, we can't get them out of the world of experience because the world of experience, again, is particular, particular. and changing, yep. right? Uh, you think about this with all the issues that we're going through right now, right? If you think, well, like, you know, to the Greeks, the idea that the you know that they're you know there's men and women and something else, they would have thought, what are you talking about, right? <laughs> so there's like a, you know a, a, like this form of human, and then we can divide that into uh, male and female, right? Um, well, of course, people don't believe that as much today, uh, at least in the United States of America and Europe, and so. Um, then that raises the the kind of question of whether there are any universal and changing truths like men and women, right? That kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, so so Aristotle, I'm sorry, not Aristotle, Saint Augustine, Saint Bonaventure would say, yeah, there are in the mind of God, right? That's where those universal, unchanging truths exist, right? There are absolute truths, and God thinks them. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, a, I, attractive, I, right? Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a that that second question that you put there. How do we access them? That's I, I think that's the uh, uh, that's the real interesting thing, because I think, you know, for the for the uh, even the American believer, I think sometimes says, well, you know, that's what I believe because I've accessed those. But I can't really show somebody my access to those. So the best we can do is believe. But with this like uh, uh, beginning point of skepticism. You know what I mean, and, and I think that's a that's a, 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 a kind of a, a big beginning place for for a lot of uh, people today is, well, I mean, we 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 think they're male and female, but I mean, do we really know? You know, what I mean, like they'll yeah, sure. you know they'll ask questions like that and stuff. So I mean, I think that the right. idea of because and I think it's because you know our, our world, you know, wants to again shut God out of it and say, well, we should be sure. able to know these things without God, or we we you know. And we'll get to why that's why that came up or why that's is the way that it is. But uh, sure. but I think that's kind of the, the modern point. So, I mean, I think that's a, a, an important point for our listeners is, you know, we have this idea of universals. We, we experience the idea of universals in particulars. Um, but mm -hmm. because we only experience these uh, particulars, we never get at the unchanging uh, uh, truth or we never get at the, the unchanging uh, reality of what the thing mm -hmm. actually is. So how is it that 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 we we access those? For Saint mm -hmm. Augustine, Saint Bonaventure, it's in the mind of God. It's That's great. Right, it's yeah. a great place to go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, um, from a sort of a, a Christian Platonic perspective, um, you would say if you kind of if you just went with experience, right? What we what we experience, uh, for, you know, for Saint Bonaventure is he would say what we experience is particular and changing right yeah. and and you know, like anytime you say travel right you experience this you start to learn some history right you know you start you, you learn oh like not everybody drives on the right side of the road <laughs> you know not um the traditional garb for women in certain asian places are these kind of flowing pants like things right or whatever like you know what i'm talking about like so you, just, you start to learn like oh 
or like hair differences and things like that, 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 that there's a lot of change and yeah, diversity yeah. right across the world. Uh, and, and the Platonists would say, okay, that doesn't mean though, there's no universal permanent truths. They just exist in the mind of God outside of uh, experience. How do we access those? According to St. Bonaventure, we access them uh, in two ways. There's uh, at least two. Uh, he would say there's two illuminations, right? Okay. Uh, and uh, of course, the highest and deepest is the illumination that is Christ, right? So that Christ is this sort of uh, um, uh, particular universal, concrete universal, right? Christ uh, enters the world, right? Uh, and as the verbum, right, as the word, right, he contains all forms within himself. And so we get sort of the illumination that is Christ and then the illumination in scripture uh, that's connected to Christ um, uh, in faith, right? Now that, though, presupposes in Bonaventure's view uh, I, a prior kind of illumination, and that is the illumination of forms. Mm -hmm. And so Bonaventure wants to start with the supposition that we do know things, mm -hmm. right? This is a classic Platonic move. He'd say, do we know anything? Bonavich would say, yes. Okay, well, what does that presuppose? Well, that presupposes that we have universal truths, right? Right. And, uh, but those universal truths can't come uh, from us because we're changing, right? So, Gary, key move there, right? My mind is changing, so the universal truths can't come from me, and they can't come from what I experience because that's also changing. Mm -hmm. So they must come from an unchanging, perfect mind, namely God, right? Yeah. And so um, I think that's a neat little argument. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's kind of St. Bonaventure, Platonic kind of style uh, argument for the existence of a perfect mind that is illuminating our minds uh, with universal and unchanging truth. You can see why Christians would find this so attractive right oh yeah the first thing that comes to mind is you know the effects of original sin you know the mind was darkened the will was weakened you know so i mean like yeah. you know before the fall we we experienced this communion with god you know and, and part of that had to do with knowledge yeah, uh, right. uh you Absolutely. know one of the preternatural gifts right um mm -hmm. and so uh you know so for 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 him to bring it up that way yeah it sounds that sounds good. You know, it was darkened, but it wasn't, you know, destroyed. We could still uh, recognize or, 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 you know, in a way like that, right. uh, right. those truths. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's important you bring, uh, bring up original sin because the next subject, excuse me, the next objection is, well, why don't I know everything, right? If God is, yeah. is illumining my mind, right? Um, uh, here the metaphor is, is like the sun shining, right? Yeah. So if you, if you go outside, you know, like, especially on say a hot day, right? And you're trying and it's clear as clear sky, you're trying you like you don't want to be hot like the sun shines on you whether you like it or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're out there working in the field, it's beaming down and you may not like it, but that's just the way it is. So why isn't it the case that I've got why don't I have more knowledge? Why am I often ignorant or in error if God is shining his light so to speak on my mind? And that goes to the question of sin and impurity and moral corruption. Um, so, and interesting, Plato anticipates this, but both St. Augustine uh, Augustus and St. Bonaventure would say, well, it's because of our distraction, right? We are, we are distracted by things outside of us, 
we're distracted by the world, by lust, all those sorts of things. And because of that, as St. Augustine so powerfully puts it, you know, we, we're sort of pulled outside ourselves and shattered into the many things, external things. The, you, the language he uses, right? We're just like poured out and just broken up yeah. outside of ourselves, uh, which of course is a wonderful rhetorician. Um, the uh, St. Bonaventure doesn't use quite that dramatic language, but something similar, right? That is that we're, we're drawn to the particular and the changing. And because of that, right? Yeah. Uh, especially because of original sin, that's why we're ignorant. We're ignorant because of our immorality. Again, um, you know, you could see how powerful that is as a, as a Christian idea. Um, go ahead. Say well, I was going to say now, what is, what is, uh, St. Thomas, how does St. Thomas mm-hmm. take this up and what does he have to say about, uh, the idea of universals or this platonic idea? Cause again, you know, he was mm-hmm. an Aristotelian primarily. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, St. Thomas is, you know, influenced uh, by a lot of people. I, I think it is right to, to say that he's, you know, takes up Aristotle more than anyone else uh, as far as his, his resources go. And like Aristotle, he rejects the idea of um, separate forms, right? But he also rejects the idea of illumination, mm-hmm. uh, which Plato didn't have clearly in his own work. I would say Plotinus maybe did, but that's later. Um, so the, um, the reason St. Thomas rejects this, interestingly, uh has a, has two really kind of two sources. One, he just is an, uh, an empiricist. That is, he thinks that um, we gain knowledge through experience. So he adopts the Aristotelian view that all knowledge begins in the senses. Uh, so he just takes that as sort of an epistemological starting point. Like right. he just doesn't think that that in that we should focus on innate knowledge and. The Platonists, and this is true of Bonaventure and and Augustine, you know, they it's all about interiority for them, right? right? Like, where the, what you need to do is withdraw from the world around you, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you need to find that illumination within you. Um, and that's very influential in Christianity, very influential uh, in the monastic, uh, you know, kind of sure. culture and ethos. But St. Thomas, you know, he thinks, no, that's not really actually how we learn. He thinks that we learn through experience. Uh, And I think that's his most important sort of objection to this is that, yeah, we need to have universals, but we learn from experience. Uh, The second thing is he doesn't think that we need an additional light to the light of reason because he thinks the light of reason is already based on the light of God's mind. So reason itself is already an illumination within us, right? Um, so we don't need an additional one. But I think that first point is, is really the most important, right? Is do we learn from, you know, through the senses? And, and I would say, yeah. I mean, if you deprive somebody of their sense experience, they're going to know pretty much nothing. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, so that, that I think that's, that's St. Thomas's objection now. But, that, but he still wants to hold on to the idea that there are permanent and universal truths, right? And that's yeah. key, right? So St. Thomas doesn't say, well, we learn through experience and therefore all truth is changing in particular, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, St. Thomas isn't a relativist, right? So then we have to think, okay, well, fine. <clears throat> if we learn from experience and all things in experience are particular and changing, okay, how do we get to these un- universal truths? Yeah. And so this is the fascinating part of St. Thomas thing. I just wanna, just, it's just really interesting. He thinks embedded within the material world, embedded within this world of change that we experience, there is there are structures 
and patterns that underneath kind of all of the change that we experience and all the particularity we experience, underneath that, there are structures and patterns that are universal and unchanging, um, embedded within the world of change. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, just thinking about the human person, you know, the language mm-hmm. that we use is made in the image and likeness of God. Sure. That, that mm-hmm. you know, some somewhere in, you know, each human person, we can, I don't want to say, I don't necessarily want to say catch a glimpse of God, but mm-hmm. there's, sure. you know, a, a reflection, you know, or something, you sure, know, there's, yeah. there's. There's something to each uh, human person that, uh, with the eyes, you know, with the eyes of faith, that we can kind of, we can see that yeah. unchanging truth that, about them. Yeah, that's something that can be said of every Homo sapien. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and always, right? So that that's key, right? Is that both those? It's a universal truth, right? Um, so, of course, St. Thomas is aware that in saying this, you know, he's saying, well, all knowledge begins in experience, but what we experience is particular and changing. And so how do we get, how do we, how do we find and discover this permanence right underneath? Now, first, I think you can just kind of appeal to common sense um, and just say, look, this is the way humans actually think. We don't think everything is changing and everything is particular, right? right? Uh, our normal default position is to think, well, something, there's a, there are natural kinds, to use philosophical language, right? There's such a thing as the species of badger. So we can identify, you know, oh, look, there's a badger, there's a badger, and there's another badger yeah, yeah. Um, over time and across places. So um, the, uh, but, but even so, the, the question remains, okay, well, how do we know that? Like, how do we get that knowledge? And this is where he brings in the theory of abstraction. Uh, the theory of abstraction, I don't want to get into too far with the details, but sure. just basically that that we can distinguish, right? Mm-hmm. Abstraction really comes down to the ability to make distinctions, um, that we can distinguish the permanent from the transitory. We can distinguish the universal from the particular. It's not always easy, but we can go through this process. And one of the places I wanted, I've, I've experienced this directly when I, uh, all the, for all the years I was teaching logic, um, when we'd go through the first part of logic, right. Uh, that always involved definition, right? right? We would do a couple of weeks in definition and that was always a fun and frustrating part of the class. <laughs> like I really enjoyed it actually. I enjoy, this is terrible. I enjoy the frustration of the students. <laughs> Because I would you know, say, okay, well, let's let's define some things. Let's define lamp, right, yeah. or salad, or something like that, you know. And it's really hard, especially with those kind of uh, artificial things, right? <laughs> yeah. But we can, you know, if you start working on it, you can sort of get to the place where you can say, okay, I can peel away what is accidental, what is secondary, right? Uh, what is transitory about a human being, right? So, um, you know. Uh, uh, I recently got a haircut. Maybe our viewers can tell, right? And I was very pleased. And I like to tease my children that uh, my hair was about, I think when I got my haircut, maybe almost as long as yours right now, Jason, maybe not, not quite, but almost. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would, I would tease my kids and say, well, yeah, dad's starting to look like a hippie. I need to get a haircut. Right. <laughs> uh, but even I, right. Went from a little bit longer hair to shorter hair. Right? Yeah. But, you know, uh, you can gain weight, you can lose weight. Um, those are transitory. You wouldn't say, oh, well, 
you know, uh, Dr. Smith lost a little weight, therefore he's not a homo sapien anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. well, no, what? No, like, there's something permanent there, right? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we so- can and, and we can see like or in you know at least in my mind right now there's so many instances popping up when people talk about you know uh, like euthanasia. Well, the person is knocked unconscious. Okay, well, <laughs> how how have they ceased to be a human person? Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh, I mean, there's uh-huh, just so uh-huh, many yeah. so many different accidental changes uh, mm-hmm. that do not uh, right. necessitate a, a substantial change in what the thing is. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that language is uh, important there, right? Of course, uh, essence and substance, right? And and you know, Saint Thomas, uh, you know, following Aristotle, but I would also say kind of developing Aristotle, would say that what subsists, right? So taking that that word yeah. substance. Actually, whenever I teach metaphysics, I try to stress this. Uh, it's best to, to use the word substance as a verb, right? As a verb, What okay. subsists, right? What perdures, right, is what you're talking about. And what perdures in a human person at a foundational level is his essence, right? Right. So essence is what perdures. Now, that's important, right, because St. Thomas, as I said, thinks that universal truths that there are universal and permanent things embedded within reality. Well, what what is that? And his answer would be essence. Okay. So what the human mind does is it abstracts. So you are uh, a man. I am a man, right? Human beings. Um, you are sadly unbearded, uh, whereas <laughs> I am wonderfully bearded, right? So, <laughs> right? Uh, nevertheless, I recognize your humanity, Jason, despite... Right, your lack of you're so merciful. Bearded. You're so merciful. <laughs> I'm accompanying you in your right. lack of uh, to the peripheries. Uh, <laughs> that's right. So uh, I can see that 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 there's that sort of accidental right right thing, but underneath we can distinguish right that there's still this essence which is uh, the human being, Homo sapien, uh, to put it in Aristotelian terms, rational animal, right? And so that's. That's what subsists. Now we form what Saint Thomas said. We form the word man, right, right. and we apply it to all humans. Um, that term, right, man. That idea, man, has these kind of universal features, right? Sure. That that say you or I as individuals, uh, men, don't have. But um, uh, that universal idea of man really refers to something. It refers to yes. something in reality. And what it refers to is uh, your essence and my essence, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, is this what we would just call human nature? <clears throat> yeah, human nature. I think for these purposes, that's fine. And, uh, um, you know, then you could still say, well, Jason and, and Ben are not the same individual right. man, right? Even though we're both men. And and that's because of our um, individuating accidents. Right, so this is right, right. E- here, right for St. Thomas's, uh, I wasn't born of the of the same parents that you were born of, right? Those are this is going to sound weird at first, um, <laughs> but your particular parentage is accidental to your humanity, right? Me, does that make sense to say, right? Like, like my yeah. parents, Steve and Christine, right? Like, obviously, when I use the word accident here, I'm using it in a very technical sense, sure, right? But their being your parents is not necessary for being human. Right, right, right. Okay, right. Yeah. 
Um, so in that sense, it's accidental to my humanity. Obviously, it's not accidental to my individual existence. Right, right. But it's accidental uh, to me being a human, right? If it wasn't the case, then what you'd have to say is something weird, like if you're not born of Stephen and Christine, then you're not a human, right? <laughs> uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And it's and it when you let's see, let me think of the right way to to uh, to I guess put this uh, that even though they in a way they are uh, a cause of your humanity or in of your course. existence they are not the cause of your human or they are not the formal cause of your that's human right. of your human nature <laughs> that's right that's right yeah i mean they they are secondary efficient causes right. so you know it'd be fun uh, next time i see him i'm going to do this i'm going to say uh, <laughs> Hey, secondary efficient causes of my being. How you guys? <laughs> Happy secondary efficient causes. That's right. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the um, um, they are efficient causes, but not formal causes. Yeah, okay. and this is and this is where you know the idea of causality is mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. important and comes into play here as well. Yeah. So. Now, so something that's going to come up here and it's important vis-a-vis uh, our uh, Franciscan theologians we're about to talk about in later medieval philosophy, uh, and this sometimes sort of grates on kind of modern sensibilities, right, <laughs> is that, is what I have to say, Jason, is that your individuality, right, from a Thomist perspective, I'd say classical, Augustinian, Aristotelian, Platonic, everybody that's wise, perspective, Um <laughs> Right, you are. I'm not partisan. From that perspective, your individuality is metaphysically second. Right. Mm. Yeah. See, we don't like that. Either. Yeah. No. I am. I am. You know. I define who I am. Ben. That's right. That's ben. Right. You know. Yeah. Like yeah. you know. Like. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the other thing that I think is important. Like with this whole understanding of human nature is you know. Mm. Uh, especially when the discussion turns to modern things like, you know, gender theory and like all these right. other things is, you know, if, if I get to decide, you know, metaphysical realities about myself, then, then what, what is our human nature based on, yeah. you know, is it just simply based on a, a, a spiritual autonomy or something like what, what is right. it, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that, uh, for, for Catholics having these discussions, uh, is mm-hmm. when these things come up, say, okay, well, you know, what is the basis then of our sure. human nature sure. if we really, yeah. if everything is uh, uh, self-defined? If yeah. you can define yeah. absolutely everything about yourself, why should I hold that you have any more, di- that you have the same dignity as I do? Can't I just define that I have more dignity than you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, you know, right, like, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. I, I think this has a lot of uh, big practical uh, consequences when you reject uh, uh, things like human nature and kind of uh, sure. those ideas and stuff. Yeah, and, and and in saying this, look, I'm not saying I think obviously, right, right, that your personality, your individuality, your individual character is unimportant, right? Okay, right, right. But what I am saying is that it's metaphysically second. Yeah. Right. So let's say let's take the like let's say you you you, you could take the various temperaments right yeah. or uh, your particular way of using language let's say that you're a poet <clears throat> or a musician right and you're like well man you're saying my musical ability is less defining <laughs> than my humanity well 
in a certain sense, yes, I am saying that, but yeah. just think about it for a minute, right? You are able to be a musician because you're a rational animal. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're able to be a husband or wife because you're a rational animal. Right. Um, th those, those things about our individuality, I'm saying they're secondary. That doesn't mean unimportant. So an issue we revisit regularly on this podcast, <laughs> right, is the ability to make distinctions and rank things, yeah. right, but still keep them connected, right? Yeah, it's yeah. hard, right, <laughs> uh, I found for people. But uh, once you get it, it's helpful. So I can say, look, your individuality is important. Your personality is important. Your character is important, obviously. But our ability to even have such a thing as character, right? Like yeah. dogs aren't truly vicious, right? Uh, nor are they truly virtuous, okay? Um, because they don't have the rational faculties by which you would be either virtuous or vicious, right? Right. Um, sorry to offend everybody now. So that's all. <laughs> just <laughs> don't talk about talk. cats. Just don't talk about cats. <laughs> Oh, no, well, you're right. There's no question cats are vicious. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and evil. Objectively evil. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think that that's really important to grasp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, now, um, do, do I need to say anything more about that? No, no I, think it's, I, I think it's one of those things. There's, there's certain things that are more foundational than others, you know. That's right. Uh, and, 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 and even when we say things like it's secondary, like you said, it doesn't mean that we're saying it's not unimportant, uh, you know, and we're also, we're also not saying that just because it's secondary, that God doesn't care about it or, or he doesn't want to see it develop in a virtuous way and things like that. No, God cares about all of these things, whether they're first or second or third or, or anything like that. That's right. Yeah. It's just in, in our, in our thinking, in our understanding, in our application and development of, policies, laws, um, philosophies in our uh, ability to understand the world according, and again, according to the mind of God, to understand reality as it was created, the design, mm. you know, we, we have to, we have to use, uh, this language, uh, sure. um, to make those distinctions without losing connections, you know? And That's right. Oh, good. Good. That's well put, Jason. <laughs> uh, the, uh, let me just, uh, piggyback on that just and say, maybe something that may, make this seem a little more appealing. Let's say that you've got a particular vice, right? That you've developed over time, right? So that there's a certain vice that's, that's, that's bothering you, corrupting your life, giving you, tr you know, moral challenge. That's part of your individuality too, right? Yeah. Like that's a, that's part of your uh, individual kind of character and makeup. That is a, but it's still, and thanks be to God, we can say an accident, right? Yeah. Like I can say, okay, yeah, maybe I'm struggling with gluttony or uh, pride or wrath, right? I've got a I've got you know wrath as a vice. Okay, fine. Um, that doesn't define my humanity, my me at the essence, right? Right. I can in fact change that. Yeah. Right. So maybe that's a, a way of kind of seeing how this is actually uh, appealing, right? That is that that um, I'm not actually defined completely or fundamentally, I should say, right? Uh, by my vices. My vices are things that uh, I, that can be changed, and, and I think it's important for us when we look at uh, our identity and who we are, and also when we talk to other people and they're talking about who they are. You should not, and you should not let them define themselves by their accidents. That's right. Uh, you know, yeah. and that's one of the things that or, or not define themselves foundationally. Yeah, yeah, right. foundationally of of you yeah, know right. wrapping up their identity in these accidental things of you know 
whether it be a virtue or a vice or something like that, like, you know, uh, uh, no, there's something more foundational here. And that's what we're absolutely. trying to get at. Yeah, so. absolutely. So uh, uh, I hope that that's, that's clear to our listeners. <clears throat> um, this is, I think, kind of a deep, key, important insight of medieval philosophy, of philosophy as it developed within the med- medieval period, within the medieval university, uh, within a culture, an intellectual culture, right, that was uh, profoundly Catholic, yeah. right, uh, and profoundly Christian. Um, however, over time, and there are a lot of historical kind of concrete reasons that we can't kind of go into uh, here, but at the level of ideas and at the level of philosophy, we can recognize uh, that eventually that kind of um, Thomist way, a kind of I would I would say the classical perspective that kind of synthesized both the Neoplatonic and Aristotelian views uh, was unraveled. Uh, and it was unraveled, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just say, primarily by Franciscan theologians, <laughs> right? Uh, and I'm going to point out two in particular. And I think studying medieval philosophy brings this out. And it's really interesting because there is a tendency, and Jason, you and I have talked about this, to kind of think like it's like a uh, an intellectual or historical version of the seamless garment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Usually, that's applied in contemporary moral debates. But I think there's a kind of, like good Catholics sometimes. I think have this tendency to want to say, you know, there just weren't any controversies in Catholic tradition before the Protestant Reformation, right? And, and that's just false. Yeah, I mean, it's just false, right? Um, even saints, even blesseds, right? Yeah, disagree. Um, uh, sometimes deeply, right, with each other, right, uh, and so um, and, and and so there there is a kind of I think even within the bound the bounds of the legitimate church, room for dispute and pushing back and forth. That doesn't mean that it's just that uh, all of a sudden everything becomes relativistic or anything goes. Um, but um, I think we do have to recognize that even within the medieval period, uh, uh, which we think of as a profoundly Catholic period, um, uh, nevertheless we find we find important um, controversies and disputes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's even a great letter. I think it was uh, uh, St. Augustine called St. Jerome an ass like, in a letter <laughs> that he wrote. So, I mean, it, even be, so it wasn't just between like, you know, the saints in the world. It wasn't always this struggle. Right. You know, there, right. I mean, there was, That's there right. was some real, uh, uh, real disputes between, uh, uh, between saints themselves, you know, and, That's right. you know, in That's this right. case, it was Franciscans and, primarily Dominicans. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and historically, I think this is interesting. Uh, the Franciscans won at the time, right? That is yeah. for, for really the 14th and 15th century, the Franciscan tradition becomes the predominant, uh, tradition. Uh, so, uh, in particular, I want to talk about two, uh, uh, Franciscan theologians here, Scotus and Occam. Uh, so, uh, blessed on Scotus, is born really um, uh, in the 13th century. He's active in the 13th century, kind of the late part. <clears throat> sorry, he's active in the late part of the 13th century. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's called the subtle doctor, right? Uh, and he's called the subtle doctor for a reason, uh, because he is a genius, right? I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it, right? Um, and I spent a great, when I teach medieval philosophy, I spend a great deal of time going through Scots because he's such a, he thinks in scholastic terms. He's scholastic. He knows is Aristotle, uh, for sure, uh, but almost everywhere where Thomas zigs, 
you know, SCOTUS Zacks, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. They use the same Latin language. Yeah. They use the same scholastic methodology, right? Uh, but SCOTUS develops a, I would say, radically alternative philosophical view, right? Uh, it's subtle at first, yeah. right? But once you start teasing it out, right, it actually is very significant. When people are talking, comparing SCOTUS and Aquinas, very often what they do is they talk about the doctrine of analogy and university. We're not going to talk about that as much. I sure. do talk about it in the course. Uh, but um, for our purposes, when you think about universals, the key move that SCOTUS makes, right, that's really interesting, is, is he wants to say that the distinction that we've made between essence and accidents mm -hmm. is not a real distinction, but merely a formal distinction. Mm. And so he wants to say that in reality, your essence, Jason, is Jasonness. Yeah. Hmm. Right. That's now... my essence. Yeah. <laughs> Or binness, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, it's actually to be perfectly honest, it's a little scary. But uh, <laughs> the um, I really don't want so, that to be a thing. It really shouldn't be a thing. Right. I kind of want to maybe be purified. Yeah. But it was um, the uh, so sometimes this is called hesaity, right? Uh, so um, this is uh, taken from the the Latin term hike, right? H a e c right, which means this, this. right, yes. so if you kind of, uh, thisness, right, so that there, uh, the, the distinction between your virtues and vices, the distinction to, uh, uh, the, the reality that you are uh, married to a certain person, so that relation, right, that is not an accident to what you are, but part of your essence, hmm. right, um, now, it's really interesting to think about that, right? Like, say you're, and when I teach this, some people find it very. I think this is attractive to modern people, yeah, um, because, well, because we just love our individuality so much. Yeah, and and, and, um, and I think I, I mean the 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 thing that comes to mind is that uh, uh, that scene from Gladiator. Um, yeah. where, um, <clears throat> the emperor comes out on the, uh, 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 in the, in the, uh, in the gladiator ring and he's like, who are you? And then, you know, uh, Russell Crowe turns around and he's like, you know, I am so-and-so husband to a murder wife, you know, sure, father sure. to any, and he talks about all of these things, yeah. uh, uh, as his identity. Hey, I mean, everybody that saw that scene was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's a man. Sure. But at the same time, like, you know, when somebody asks us, you know, who are we? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, those are those are kind of the default things that we go down and sure, describe. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I think in our in our uh, in our contemporary practice, mm -hmm. uh, those things are definitive of our of our identity, <clears throat> which you know is all right, I guess, but it should be yeah, distinct. Yeah. It should be distinct from uh, uh, our thinking when it comes to the reality of these things. Yeah, so this is just the thing is you just have to think carefully, right? And yeah. discipline on the matter. Yeah. So let's say that you go from not being married to being married, right? You've taken on, right, what metaphysically speaking is an accident. That is a relation to another person, right? 
that you did not have before. Right. right? Now, when people hear that, they're like, oh, is it an accident that I'm married? <laughs> yeah, like, look, just think about it, right? Were you a homo sapien before you got married? Yeah. Yes. Yes, obviously, or you wouldn't have been eligible for marriage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't define you according to your species, right? right? That's what we're saying here, right? Obviously, it's important. Obviously, right? Accidents are uh, um, uh, significant. They're distinguishing. They're informing. All those sorts of things, right? Right. 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 Um, but we also need to recognize that they are metaphysically second. Now, let's say that you're married for a while. And then your wife dies, sadly, right? Right. So you were a, a husband, and then you become a widower. Well, did you cease being human? Right. No. Now, is that change obviously devastating and important? Of course it is. It's important, yeah. but it's not your species, right? That's the, the, the tone of perspective on it. So you just have to think that way about it, right? Sure. Um, you, you still remain ontologically, like say you're experiencing grief, you're experiencing grief, yes, because you lost a wife, but the, the possibility of losing a wife is itself derivative on having been a human being, right? right? right, right. Like you can't be a, you can't lose a wife, right? Unless you are a human, okay, <laughs> right? And so again, right, that there's an ontological priority to uh, essence there from a Thomas perspective. Scotus wants to push against that and say, no, that the, the uh, essences are really singular. How did he kind of work this out? Or did he work this out? Or did he kind of just gloss over this, uh, this idea with the accidents? Well, he thinks that, 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 um, that, so there's this thing called the formal distinction, right? right, right. Okay. Uh, so this is a wonderful medieval thing to say. We have to distinguish <laughs> kinds of distinction. Okay. But this is the this is what I love about medieval philosophers. They're so precise, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, say you're talking about somebody uh, being to the left of the uh, the left of a pillar or to the right of a pillar. The classical example. That's a merely logical distinction. Logical here, just in the terms of, in, like, based in the mind, right. right? So, like, lots of arguments actually revolve around this kind of thing, right? It's just like, doesn't really matter, right? Like, arguments with my kids, like, are so often revolve. It's to the left. No, it's to the right. Well, it just depends on where you're looking from, right? Okay. But anyways, then there are real distinctions, right? So you and I are really distinct, is right. what Scotus would want to say. Okay. And Scotus is... Scotus has a clear way of of making this distinction. He says they can exist separately. Okay. Right. Um, but your so but what he's going to say about uh, your being married cannot exist separately from your your substance, and therefore it's not really distinct. Oh, right? okay, okay. From you see how he's slick. He's subtle, yeah. man. He's a subtle doctor. Um, and uh, but what he will say is that there's a formal distinction. So the formal distinction is kind of a halfway house. There's the real distinction on one hand. There's the logical distinction on the other. And yeah. The formal distinction is, <laughs> well, one half of that can exist without the other, right? Right, right, right. But not the other half. Yeah. Right? So you can exist uh, without being married because there's a time in which you, you existed and you weren't married. But your being married can't exist, right, uh, without you. Now, a good old Thomas like myself would say, well, what you're pointing to there is the difference between substance and accidents, and they're really distinct, right? But yeah, 
you know, SCOTUS is saying, nope, they're only formally distinct because they can't, those two things cannot exist separately apart from each other. Therefore, they are not really distinct things. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like you said, it's subtle, but, but it's, but it's important <laughs> because where does, where does this take us then with Occam? So, yeah. So in, in terms of ethics, and I know we're running along here, but it's just, a, it's just a, a, a big topic. The, uh, SCOTUS starts to move in the direction of what I would say is a kind of divine command theory, okay. right? He does keep teleology in the picture, mm-hmm. but interestingly, and maybe this is a topic for another discussion, but he doesn't think that teleology is the foundation of morality. That is, he doesn't think that perfectionism is the 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 foundation of reality. Merely striving for your happiness is useful and delightful, but not bonum and estum, mm. right? Not the authentic good. Yeah. Think about how interesting that is, right? The, the whole classical tradition, really, Augustine and Aquinas and all these folks, they would say, oh, the the high like the the, high school, the raison yeah. d'etre, right, of of morality is seeking happiness, yeah. right? Seeking your perfection and actualization. Scotus says, nah. It's not it, right? <laughs> uh, what is it is what he would call it. So there's the uh, is the um, is justice, right? And that comes down to obeying the law because it's the law. Uh, so in some ways, I think in the Franciscan tradition, there's a um, anticipation, right? A Kant on that point. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, 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 so he 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 distinguishes between the the what he calls the commodious uh, or um, it's almost kind of impossible to translate, but um, the commodious inclination in the will and the inclination towards the just, mm. right? And that's and why we all have a duty to that's morality right. yeah, is yeah. duty. Yeah, that's right. Morality is duty. Morality is based on law, not based on perfection and happiness. Now, he would add very quickly, and I want to be clear about this, that following the law and being happy run parallel. Right, right, right. right. So he doesn't. He doesn't divorce the two things entirely, but he does again subtly distinguish them. Right? He's yeah, like, yeah. They're really, they're, they're, you know, these two things are not the same. So that's where it goes in terms of the ethical sort of implications. Now, Occam, you know, is is uh, <laughs> sort of way. Uh, I I really kind of enjoy Occam, um, but not because I think he's right, but he's just sort <laughs> of like a bulldozer. You know, he's just he just latches onto a couple of things and just intellectually just runs all the way through, right? And uh, and so Occam, who uh, is a 14th century thinker, right? So he's born uh, at the very end of the 13th century, I think, but his, his activity is, is into the mid, middle of the 14th century. Um, you know, Occam is, is what's called a nominalist, right? And that is, he says, you know what, Scotus? You're right, but you didn't go far enough. Occam, I think. Um, namely, he says, you know what, we just... Not only is there no formal distinction between essence and accidents, right? Mm -hmm. There just are no universals at all. Everything is individual, right? Uh, And um, you could kind of see how you would make that logical progression there. Yeah. So, you know, for Occam, literally it's true that everything is different, right? Uh, All the way down. And changing, (laughs) and changing, right? Yeah, that's right, and changing, yeah. so for Occam, right, so he's called a nominalist, right, because he thinks that universals are merely nomen, N-O-M-E-N, right, yeah. merely aim, right? So that, that when we use things like man 
the term man or the term badger or the term triangle, those are not things in reality and they do not really refer to anything. They are um, convenient terms that group, I would say, our thoughts and interior concepts, right? Yeah. So let me, and let me, let me train, let me translate this for our listeners. Okay. Everything is a social construct. <laughs> That, that's, that's I mean, that's, yeah. that's what a, a lot of, a lot of arguments, oh, well, you know, uh-huh. this is a social uh-huh. construct. That's a social yeah. contract. You know, like everything that, you know, this, this mm-hmm. argument comes up a lot that it, oh, it's just, you're just putting a name on something, you know, right. like, and, and this is not a new idea. It's just a recycled, uh, wrong yeah. idea. And I would, yeah, the, I would actually say, of course, you know, contemporary people are just <laughs> blastedly inconsistent right yeah we talk about on the one hand human rights right uh as it you know like and then on the other we tend to be nominalist right? right we tend to be completely like no there are no universals except for human rights yeah why what's the know, basis but, of know. those human rights if that's, that's right. not human that's nature right. that's yeah. right that's uh, right yeah yeah um it, it's a, it's it makes no no sense at all but uh, yeah, so the way Occam puts it, yeah, to just kind of build on what you're saying there, um, they're conventional signs. Yeah. Right? Um, the things that happen inside of your mind, inside of your body, in reaction to your environment, are what he would call natural signs, right? Yeah. So we are responding to our environment, but then we put words on top of that in order to communicate it, right, that are merely conventional. Now, he thinks that that's important, right? Yeah. He thinks uh, like we need to be able to communicate with each other. And he doesn't think, so this is really interesting, in an odd sort of way, he anticipates uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, great name for a philosopher. <laughs> uh, ben Smith is not that great for a philosopher, but you know. You I mean, sound like you're in a witness sort. protection program. <laughs> Heinrich <laughs> Wittgenstein, that's pretty good stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, so Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, is a 20th century philosopher, but he, he was also anomalous, but he had the, this idea of what he called family resemblances, right? And so he would say, kind of like if all the Gales got together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all the Gales by blood, we'll say. And they were all standing around. They wouldn't look the same, yeah. but there would be some sort of like, oh, well, this one looks like that one, and that one looks like that other one, right? And so there's some kind of kind of group similarity grouping we can do, right? <laughs> Without, yeah. right, we say, oh, you can, because like, you know, look at a big family photo, you could say, you can kind of see how it hangs together. Wittgenstein liked to put, use it, put it that way, because there's enough resemblance in the aggregate, right, in the group, um, to say, oh, there's the Gales, right? Right. Um, but uh, there's no such thing as Galeness, right, is what both Occam and Wittgenstein would say. Um, so uh, it's, it's interesting, right, uh, when, you, when you look at it that way. Again, Occam kind of, kind of does what he's doing. Now, you could say, well, then what do we do with ethics? How should we behave? And this is where Occam's volunteerism comes in, right? That is, yeah. well, look, what we have, basically what it comes down to is the will of the sovereign, right? It's the will right. of God. Um, and and that's why he uh, uh, follows you know, sort of a divine command approach. Of course, in addition to that, this leads to widespread skepticism. Right. Right. Uh, if you know, there are no universals, then there are no deductive certitudes, right? If there's no truths to go full circle with our conversation today, if there are no universal and permanent truths, right, then you cannot deduce anything with necessity. Right? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, then you know? everything is changing. Everything uh, um, is changeable. 
Yeah, you know, very, interchangeable. Yeah, everything's particular. Yeah. Right. So yeah, this this case of adultery is bad, but maybe that one's okay, right? Yeah. Because you know every adult, every act of adultery is different. Right. right. <laughs> you know? Darn it. Right. Well, well, again, that's why you know when you when you base your your when the basis of your ethics is authority. Mm-hmm. You know, then, that's then all. Yeah, 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 and that's all it is. Then, then especially what happens then uh, uh, when you get to the complete separation of church and state? Well, then, yeah, sure, and sure. all of morality becomes democratic. You know, if you live in a yeah. if you live in a republic or or tyrannical, or dem- yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right? it's just the, the the most powerful person decides, right? Yeah, yeah, or it's just yeah. complete individual. And yeah, that anarchy. just leads to, yeah, chaos and anarchy. But Yeah, and really instructively, I mean, this is exactly what Plato talks about at the end of the Republic, right? He starts to, in those last chapters, last books, he really points to, right, this kind of chaotic anarchy and breakdown of order both within the human being yeah, right, yeah, yeah. and within the city. Yeah. Uh, when we fall, when we lose, when we become ignorant of, right, the universal and uh the unchanging so i think you know just as a a kind of a plug for the medieval course i really think like medieval philosophy why do i need to study that right yeah it is so relevant right to to every human situation i would say um but especially to our own right because the issue of just think about this okay universal and unchanging truths right is that important Right? Is it important in our time? Is it important for our souls? Right? And I would say, obviously, yes. Yeah. Right? And we can see, right, even within medieval philosophy, even within a profoundly Catholic civilization, right, yeah. the gradual breakdown of those very kind of found, foundational ideas that are required for uh, true understanding required for wisdom and required uh for moral order yeah and clear thinking i mean it's such mm-hmm. a it's such a th- uh, important thing especially today when we're we're not thinking very clearly and we're thinking by our either our emotions or by you know some false ideas that we need to sit down and think through what is the basis of you holding this position is it you know you're just skeptic of everything or is it because you know you really don't think that there's human nature or you know to, to actually sit down and, and work through these things. Uh, well, I hope, I hope our listeners have, have gained hopefully some, a, a historical perspective of maybe how did we get some of the things we have today? Where do we, where did we get them? Uh, uh, a lot of it's uh, during the medieval time. And, you know, and, and of course the, the, the ultimate uh, uh, I think lesson is ideas have consequences. <laughs> sure. Uh, and that's no, why, you're, that's you're why wrong. I think that's it. Jason Rock, the ultimate lesson here is that the Franciscans <laughs> ruined the world. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. So, but ideas have consequences, and it's important That's for right. us to think, uh, to try to think as, as clear as we can, and to seek, uh, in, in those times when we're not thinking clearly, to seek wise guides. Uh, and that's uh, a big part of what we're doing at Catholic Studies Academy is trying to introduce and reintroduce and essentially have Catholics begin to almost like date these wise thinkers (laughs) to walk with them and to bring them into uh, their daily life and thinking. Uh, And so with that, I want to invite everybody to check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Until next time, God bless.